The following is a pre-recorded program. And tonight we have a, a special guest. Uh, he has uh, been with us before, but it's good to have him back. And he's uh, here to talk about a subject uh, that he is encased in a new book. Uh, his name is Philip Gerard. He is a professor of uh, creative writing. Is that right, Philip? Yes, that's exactly right, Tom. At the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And uh, the new book, and I think you will love it, uh, it's the last battleground of the North Carolina, the Civil War comes to North Carolina. And I didn't mention this to you, Philip, but usually uh, at this time of year, I have uh, somebody on to talk about our, our, our Civil War battle, which you can talk about tonight. You're filling uh, several, several slots, and that is the Battle of Bentonville, because we're coming up on the anniversary of it. And when I was able to get your book scheduled, I thought, well, we'll just have it count as our taking a look at the Civil War in North Carolina and uh, the last battleground is a title that fits perfectly. Uh, I think I mentioned that Philip is a professor of creative writing at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, and he has written a number of books. Uh, the one that we talked to him about oh, three or four years ago, I guess it was, had to do with a wild ride down the Cape Fear River, and it's still uh, worthy to read. I, I've looked back at it since then, Philip. And, but um, tonight we're going to talk about this new book. As a matter of fact, the ink is sort of figuratively barely dry on it. I know they didn't really publish it, publish it today, print it today anyway, but today is the official day of publication. And you're going to be in Raleigh, for kind of kicking kicking the book off, I think, at uh, Quail Ridge. Uh, yeah, we're going to be there on March 31st, uh, which is a Sunday, from 2 to 4 p.m., and I'm going to bring my guitar and play a couple of Civil War songs to go along with uh, a little talk I'll get uh, to see readers and uh, and share the book with them. Well, that's that's the invitation there. Well, you'll have to play the Bonnie Blue Flag now for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's my request anyway. Uh this is a, a, uh, an unusual book, and I, I was kidding, and I wanted to apologize to you when we talked on the phone earlier today. I was sort of kidding when I said the question that sometimes people have, uh, and I, I got the idea for the question, in fact, from, from your text uh, in that uh, uh, when the, and we'll talk about in a moment who proposed your writing this book, uh, because you are a professor of creative writing, you're not a Civil War expert, and I, and I know you you would disclaim that uh, to the high heavens. Uh, but uh, uh, the uh, the idea for it uh, came from uh, the editor, or, or at least she pushed the idea, the editor of our state magazine. And sure, uh, sure, I can tell you about that. Elizabeth Hudson, she's a wonderful yeah. editor, wonderful uh, creative kind of genius behind. The, the re-envisioning of that journal uh, has has really carved out a place for it. She called me. She'd seen some of my work, and I, I'd met her before. And she said, I have an interesting proposition. How would you like to do a piece uh, on the Civil War in North Carolina for the sesquicentennial of the 150th anniversary? And I said, well, you know, I really don't know anything about the war. I was raised in Delaware. You know, our, our, our big war was the Battle of the Brandywine and the Revolution and Valley Fours and all that. And I suggested a number of uh, colleagues of mine who are wonderful historians, that people like Chris Vonville down here. And she said, no, no, no. She said, we, we kind of want you because you're ignorant. You know, don't make me I'm still taking it back, but my, my mantra as a writer... It's hard to turn down an offer like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, as a writer, I tell my students, you need two qualities, and you have to have them both. 
One is ignorance and the other is curiosity. So you have to have something that you really want to find out about, and then you really got to find out about it, really write about it. And so the idea was to go out there, not with the kind of settled hindsight of someone who was an expert and has spent a career, you know, mining all the, the, the archives, but to really report it almost as if it were happening now. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt once famously addressed the American Historical Society and said, you really have to write history as if it were happening in the present. And I really wanted to capture that sense that these people didn't know how things were going to turn out. They were enduring this really terrible suspense. They were gambling everything. Um, they were risking a lot uh, in terms of not just their, their treasure, but their families, their very lives often. And I wanted to kind of capture it at the level of what people were doing, not, not the kind of chess moves of grand regiments on the battlefield, although it's impossible to write about the war with, without doing a little bit of that. But the idea was to really get down to the level of people. So I sent the first piece in, and they called me back and said, how would you like to do this for four years, once a month? <laughs> and I took a long, a long gulp and a deep breath, and I said, sure. And so we wound up with, I think it was 51 altogether that we did. That's kind of like having a job, isn't it? Uh... Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, writing is hard work. It's really satisfying, right. but it's hard work. And then I thought, well, okay, um, UNC precedent in doing this as a book. And I thought it'd be really easy just to kind of collect them all, slap a cover on them. But in the end, I ended up going back and pretty much re-reporting everything, revising everything, adding new material. We had two historians look at the whole thing before publication. I personally hired two other fact-checkers to go through it. And, of course, there was the copy editing and then the proofreading and the, all the rest of the press to try to make it as clean and as accurate you know, as possibly could. So it's been a very long journey from here to there. And, and one that has really both enlightened me, but also, in, in my own case, deepened my sense of mystery about the war. That is, at the end of really six years was, was the whole book in making, I don't feel like an expert so much as someone with lots of questions and a lot more information about those questions, but there are still sort of these great existential things that loom over our country because of this war, and I still ponder them. The questions are, are in fact, still there. I, it's the same feeling. I went to graduate school in history, uh, and uh, I, the more I got involved in studying the Civil War, the deeper the deeper it got, so to speak. I, I was wondering sometime if I fell in, if I would ever get out. But So it's the same experience that you're having there, and you're, you're left with questions to explain. But uh, now you, uh, you uh, agreed with... Uh, with Elizabeth uh, Hudson, that you were going to write this book as if if as if you were going through uh, the process at the time. Was that a particular problem? Because when I was teaching, I used to try to ask my students to do that. You know, try to, to place yourself in the past. And uh, well, it's the the hardest part of writing like that is to try to remember what people didn't know. So even things like language, like metaphors, when you're writing, you can't say they were acting in slow motion because, of course, you know, they didn't have movies yet. The whole idea of slow motion hadn't been invented. And, and you've got to remember that, that they didn't know that Grant was going to be this amazing general or that Stonewall Jackson was going to get shot out of the saddle or you know, they didn't know all the turns of faith that we take for granted. And when the two generals finally met, Joe Johnston and uh, William Sherman, when they met at uh, Bennett Place to try to hammer out a surrender, um, it was a fraught experience because Lincoln had just been shot. A lot of people in the War Department in Washington assumed that the Confederate government had been beside behind the assassination attempt. And it was anybody's guess whether they were going to pull off anything or just keep on fighting. So to try to capture that is the hardest part. 
and then to try to, you kind of have to back up to the moment before things happen and go forward knowing only what they knew at the time and trying to recalibrate your mindset to that. And that's, you have to imagine yourself into a different place and, and you kind of get in the habit of doing that and it becomes a little bit easier, but it's something you have to purposely try to do. Let's stop now. We need to take a break. We're talking here on the Tom Carney Show tonight with uh, fellow Gerard, uh, professor of creative writing at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And uh, when I went to make out the schedule that we post today, uh, Philip, I thought, well, he's a, an historian. So it's uh, you are you have been labeled. I, I don't know if anybody has done it before, but I have actually. I know. Uh, I think one of the. Um, Mark Bradley or somebody on, on one of the blurbs uh, says that you're, or Chris Fonville. Uh, but in any case, uh, historian Philip Gerard will talk about his new book. The Last Battleground is the book that the Civil War comes to North Carolina. And maybe if you could give us uh, an overview of the Civil War coming to North Carolina, because it came fairly quick and then it was kind of like a hammock. There was a lull in the middle, and then it came came again. Uh, at least that's what sure. it seems like to me. And uh, if you could sort of fill in the details on that. One of the things that I'm constantly thinking about, for instance, living in Raleigh, and you mentioned that you're from Delaware, uh, is that uh, about two-thirds of the population of the capital city of the Tar Heel State probably are native North Carolinians. They probably did, or, or maybe at least half, came from somewhere else. And they... What is second nature? Well, I was uh, going to talk to a bunch of people in Raleigh about the Civil War one time, and they said, how did you get interested in the Civil War? And I said, I was born in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And, you know, it came with the package at that point. Uh, 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 what we, we learned about, we, we were in a southern state. It was we and them, and we learned about General Custer, uh, not, not General Custer. Uh, I've got him on the brain tonight. General uh, Sherman coming to Goldsboro for a visit in 1865, and it was just about this time of year, as a matter of fact. So uh, if you could, could could talk about nor the Civil War coming to North Carolina in, a, in, a, in the large sense, and then we'll go back maybe and find some of the particular incidents that you think are remarkable uh, and some of the people that you think are remarkable. We're talking with Philip Gerard, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 921 at News Radio 680 WPTF. Our guest tonight on the Tom Kearney Show is Philip Gerard, who teaches at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, uh, frequent contributor to Our State Magazine, by the way, and uh, the author of a new book, The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina, and that's what we're going to ask him to talk about now. Uh, the... Uh, uh, if, if my metaphor of the of the, the hammock is all right, uh, Philip, the first time the Civil War came to North Carolina. Well, the Civil War comes to North Carolina several in several ways. The the secession vote is actually the last uh, we're the last state to secede in North Carolina, which is an interesting thing all by itself. That had we delayed a few more months, had they delayed, then you know, who knows what the outcome would have been. But um, the very first thing that happens, pretty much, is that the the entire uh, uh, Eastern Seaboard, Hatteras and New Bern, Beaufort, they fall pretty early in the war, and they stay fall, and they, they remain uh, part of the uh, Army of Occupations for the entire duration of the war. Wilmington doesn't until very late in the war. And uh, for a long time, North Carolina is not a battleground so much as a home front, although there are sorties in from the coast, and they're, they're sorting in from the coast to try to stop the railroad, which is taking uh, all the material that's coming into the port of Wilmington with the blockade runners, to on the Wilmington Weldon Line all the way up to Virginia to the Army of Northern Virginia. 
So the Civil War comes in North Carolina that way. It comes in other ways. Conscription it, uh, suddenly takes hold. And so for the first time ever, you know, people who, uh, the irony, of course, people who are uh, taking up arms in order to defend what they call their freedom to do what their state wants to do actually are being conscripted against their will into the military while plantation owners are being exempt if they own a certain number of slaves. So the war then be- becomes a kind of a fact. Uh, but there's really several different North Carolinas going on uh, because out of the mountains you have unionist counties that are really aligned with the with the U.S. government in Washington. In the in the Piedmont, you've got uh, a lot of Quakers or Western Piedmont. You've got lots of Quakers who are not in favor of the war at all. Uh, in Raleigh, you've got a situation where one contemporary observer said that they had to have Confederate troops in Raleigh not to keep up the Yankees, but to make sure that the people of Raleigh better control because they didn't trust their loyalties either. So it was a sort of uh, a quilt, and it depended on where you were in North Carolina, kind of which flag you flew. And then there was an organization called the Heroes of America, which was 10,000 or so strong, headquartered right in Raleigh, and it was manifestly trying to undermine the Confederate um, government and the Confederate war effort every turn. Now, the book really takes the last part of the war uh, as the jumping-off point, and the last four or five months of the war, you could say that pretty much everything that mattered in the eastern zone of battle, which was the main zone, was happening in North Carolina. Um, you have the invasion of the, comes, the invasion fleet that comes down to Fort Fisher, a massive bombardment, the, the most in, you know, largest one in history up to that point. And then a second bombardment a few weeks later, when they can't take the fort the first time, take Fort Fisher and Wilmington. Meanwhile, the troops that are already in New Bern are marching in from the east, and there are troops coming over the mountains. Uh, General Stoneman is bringing his cavalry troopers over the mountains to raid. And then the big invasion actually comes from the south. It's uh, William Sherman with 60,000 men uh, coming across the South Carolina border, having burned Columbia and heading for Goldsboro, your, your old hometown, and, right. and, uh, and pretty much destroying every railroad that he can find on the way, although the orders in North Carolina to the troops are to respect private property. And the reason is that they presume that they're going to find many more loyal unionists in North Carolina than South Carolina. That doesn't prove to be the case exactly because of the area they're marching through happens to be the heart of the really Confederate stronghold of North Carolina. Um, and then everything comes to a head, of course, with the great surrender at Bennett Place, which is three times the number of, of soldiers surrendered at Appomattox and creates a political as well as a military end to the war at Eastern Theater. So. There's a lot happening in North Carolina, and it turns out to be probably, in many ways, the best southern state to look at the war through, because pretty much everything happens here. And you can you can find everything you need to talk about the entire war just by using North Carolinians and what happened inside the boundaries of the state of North Carolina. Right. That is one of the, the things that I, I was hoping you would draw attention to, is that you're using it as a kind of lens to look at the whole war and and to and to see, uh, I guess, uh, what's going on in microcosm in North Carolina. Uh, sure, and you know, all you have to do is realize that the, the largest and most storied regiment of the entire Army of Northern Virginia was the 26th North Carolina, and they were almost wiped out at Gettysburg. But in the meantime, of course, they fought at so many of the major engagements. So you follow North Carolinians, and you go through all the major campaigns in Virginia, culminating at Gettysburg. And, and the few that were still surviving at Appomattox, so you can you can use them to look at the war, um, and, and uh, 
inspired me. And the other things about this book that I hope people will enjoy is looking in areas beyond just soldiering. So one of the things that the 26th North Carolina had was the best band in the Confederate Army was Moravia. They were musicians from Salem. They enlisted because they didn't really want to fight. What they wanted to be was exempt from the draft, but they knew they couldn't stay home, and they knew they could play music. And huh. so they create this entire musical culture in the ranks of the Army and are wildly imitated and emulated and bring back the only surviving songbook, their, their sheet music, that they carry during the war, which if you ever these days hear a reenacting band playing uh, an arrangement of Dixie or an arrangement of some of the other music of the time, as it was played in the Civil War, it's from that sheet music that those Moravian musicians brought back to Salem after the war. Well, there's, of course, a long tradition of brass bands in the Moravian church and its culture, and I can remember right. one July 4th, so we had a remote down at the Capitol, and uh, the, is it the 26th or the 11th uh, regimental band from Fayetteville or somewhere like that? And those guys were wearing period uniforms, playing period instruments, playing period music. But uh, the, the period uniforms were wool, and it was about 90 degrees that day. So I, I felt sorry for them, but they went about their business and, and yeah. played, played what they had to play. Yeah, they, they were dressed for comfort in the summertime, which is when most of the fighting occurred. But then, of course, when it got cold, they were happy to have those uniforms on their back. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, the whole idea, I had never thought of the soundtrack of the Civil War much before. That's one reason I play music now when I do presentations for the book and, and elsewhere, that, that it, people lived their lives by songs. I mean, that was the way they mourned the dead. That's the way the family gathered. They played sentimental songs like Lorena. Uh, around the piano, they had songs like When This Cruel War Is Over, also known as Weeping Sad and Lonely, which was so depressing and such a morale buster that many commanders banned it from being sung in their camps. Um, one of the most heartbreaking uh, details that I found out about was when Pickett's Charge happened, and Pickett's Charge was really Pettigrew's Charge, a North Carolinian, mm -hmm. led his men to the wall where many of them were slaughtered. But as the survivors were just sort of hobbling back across the field, having lost, you know, a serious number of their of their compadres. As they came toward the tree line from where they attacked, they could hear the strings of a band playing near my God to be. Oh my God. Boy, that just that just breaks your heart to think about these poor guys wounded, completely demoralized, all those dead men lying on the field. And as they kind of come back uh, the broken regiment, they hear that. Well, one of the things, and I'm steering us toward a break now, so just hold on. But one of the things that's happened is there's been more and more study of the kind of the culture, you know, the rebel. I think a professor from Alabama has studied the rebel yell, and and uh, certainly hearing Dixie would cause any good Southern boy to be inspired and to be willing to charge the Yankees. Our guest tonight is Philip Gerard. The book is The Last Battleground. We'll be back after we check the news. The following is a pre-recorded program. 33 News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney here. Uh, I have to give you a, a commercial message before we get back to Philip Gerard and his new book, The Last Battleground, The Civil War, comes to North Carolina. And it is one that's easy to read because this is a place that that I patronize. Uh, you, The folks at King's Auto Service want you to remember the old saying that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. 
that applies also to dealing with your vehicle. Capital Quick Lube is now located within King's Auto Service on Northwest Street in downtown Raleigh. Oil changes are the most important maintenance service for your engine, and King's Capital Quick Lube provides a good, quick service, and also you can get your state inspection. I, I got just the state inspection about a month ago, and it, it took about 20 minutes, and it didn't even have to have an appointment. And that's possible Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Even better, if you require more extensive maintenance, what I call Plan B, it's available at King's Auto Service. For those of you who are currently driving a Toyota Prius or some other hybrid vehicle, the certified hybrid technicians at King's are now able to refurbish your high-voltage battery pack for less than half of what the dealer would charge to replace it. This usually occurs, by the way, at about 150,000 miles. Call King's tomorrow to schedule a courtesy battery analysis. King's Auto Service and King's Capital Quick Loop are easy to find at 1039 Northwest Street in downtown Raleigh and at kingautomotive.net on the web. King's Auto Service, Raleigh's most reliable auto care since 1946. A new book published today by the UNC Press, which means it, it will be easy to find. Um, and uh, the author of it is uh, a professor at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, who is a professor of creative writing and who has uh, authored any number of articles for, well, among other things, where I usually read him is in, in our state magazine, to which I subscribe. The last battleground, the Civil War comes to North Carolina. And before he went away, at, just before the news, we were talking about uh, how the Civil War came to uh, North Carolina uh, in the beginning and, and, and toward the end. And we will come back uh, and look at that. But I, I, I hope he will talk for a few minutes with us because his effort here has not just dealt with uh, Sherman and uh, Johnston and the leaders, but in fact uh, dipped down into the ordinary soldiers and also into the population, the, the folks at home uh, and some of the leaders of the state and what they were in fact doing. And uh, uh, Philip, if you could talk about uh, some of the people that you met, because I think the whole idea of this is that you're sort of walking around, figuratively speaking, in North Carolina, keeping an eye on people and what's going on as we go through the war. Sure. And one of the people I met uh, was William B. Gould, who was a slave, uh, a young man who had educated himself on the fly, had made himself fluent in, in uh, uh, reading and writing, and uh, was working out of uh, a kind of a barracks in Wilmington where slaves were hired out to local people. So he ended up working on the Bellamy Mansion, which was finished just at the eve of the war, the great mansion on Market Street, where John D. Bellamy, who was this very rich plantation owner, and, and very much a secessionist who helped to advocate for the war, lived. Uh, and when the yellow fever epidemic came up the river on a blockade runner called the Cape and began infecting people, uh, a whole lot of people, something like a third of the population, just fled Wilmington along with the Bellamy's. And a lot of the slaves who were left behind, uh, household slaves they were called, or people, the artisans who were working out of those barracks, took it in their initiative to free themselves. They, they took this opportunity. So Gould and companions went down to the waterfront one night, waited for the, the dark of, uh, of the night, and actually went down the river past, I think it was nine different gun batteries without being discovered, put up their sail on the estuary, and were taken aboard uh, the, the Cumberland, a U.S. warship. At the very moment, pretty much, Lincoln was briefing his cabinet on the new war aim, which would become the Emancipation Proclamation. So these guys, and he had several... Uh, three boatloads of companions were busy liberating themselves. Um, up in New Bern, a really interesting character named, named uh, Abraham Galloway, 
uh, was he had been born in Wilmington, had escaped slavery, had gone north, worked with the Underground Railroad, and he shows up back in North Carolina uh, at the Freedmen's Colony out there in Roanoke Island, and he becomes the political figure that the Union Army has to deal with if they want to raise black troops, so-called U.S. colored troops. And he negotiates very hard. One of the things he said, they're going to get the same pay. They're going to, while they're gone, you have to take it uh, upon yourself to educate the families they leave behind, their children. You have to help provide for the women they leave behind. And um, and by the way, if they're captured, you have to guarantee they're going to be treated as prisoners of war and not killed or sold back into slavery. Well, they were able to promise all the things but the last. And it was the policy of the Confederate government to take slaves, uh, or I'm sorry, to take black troops that were captured and to put them back into slavery or into slavery had they been free men before the war. And at places like the Crater in Petersburg, um, a big stalemate was happening toward the end of the war, and Grant couldn't break Petersburg, and the soldiers of Petersburg were holding out. And a, uh, a Pennsylvania miner named Colonel Henry Pleasant hit upon a plan with his 48th, 48th Pennsylvanians to tunnel under the works as they did to build a coal mine and put a massive mine. And they did this. And they had briefed um, and prepared the, the uh, fourth division of USCT, the black troops, to go in. And the idea was once the crater blew a big hole in the Confederate lines, they were to go around the crater and consolidate the gain there, take the high ground behind it, and then they would be able to have their, their final breakthrough in the Confederate line. Well, at the last minute, they pulled the black troops out for various political reasons, and they sent in untried troops to rush right into the crater, and then they sent the black troops in behind them. And so what ensued was not just an amazing slaughter inside this crater as the Confederate troops recovered and started shooting down at them, um, but once the, the uh, black troops were trying to surrender, uh, they were clubbed to death, bayoneted, shot, and it became uh, a, a terrific atrocity, very much like what had happened at Fort Pillow out west. So uh, if you were a black soldier, you were risking a whole lot more. You weren't going to be captured. If you were captured, you were probably going to be put to death or put into slavery or some other fate. And if you were a white officer commanding black troops, you were to be executed. So it was it was a hard war in many respects, and, and there were atrocities happening. Well, there were complexities that sometimes are not, uh, the, the light is not thrown onto them. I, I know in one place uh, you write that, that uh, Sherman, who had come through, and I, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble with my fellow Southerners for saying this, but I feel better about Sherman than I used to. Uh, uh, yeah. But uh, he, at uh, some point, uh, uh, sent out a directive. Uh, that I think there are like 25,000 uh, former slaves or sl uh, slaves who have left their their masters or whatever, and are, who are following the army, and the army's having to feed them, and he wants them to be to. I think he's in Newburn, and he wants them to go to Wilmington because he can't afford he can't afford the supplies to feed them and take care of them, and th that was right. But he he beelines up through Columbia, which gets burned, and there's the controversy to this day how much he had to do with it and how much. Uh, uh, the retreating Confederates did. I think there's probably a bit of both. There's pretty reliable evidence that Wade Hampton's cavalry burned some bales going out of town. Mm -hmm. Other pretty reliable uh, information that uh, Union prisoners who were suddenly free took their vengeance on the town. And probably some of Sherman's troops were enjoying a tremendous drunk because they had discovered all the stockpiles of brandy and wine in the way of the town. But anyway, he, he's setting up uh, to Goldsboro and... Um, when he gets to Fayetteville, which is the head of navigation on the Cape Fear River, 
and which is the reason why, one of the reasons why Grant was so adamant about taking Fort Fisher finally, uh, why they did the second try. They needed it as a staging ground because they knew Sherman was coming, they be coming up from the south. And so at Fayetteville, he takes the 25,000 what were called contrabands because they were considered part of the enemy's ability to wage war. They were used to build fortifications. They were used to carry things and drive wagons and, uh, and so on. Uh, and they were put on either steamboats or mule trains headed back to Wilmington, where they were processed through the Bellamy Mansion, which had become the U.S. Army of Occupation headquarters and the headquarters of the Freedmen's Bureau. So a great irony there, Bellamy being a slaveholder. And many of those uh, blacks settled around Wilmington. One of the reasons why later uh, in the 1890s there was such um, a racial clash here, it had become a kind of a mecca for, for African Americans. Um, yeah, we have that. It started with, with Sherman sending those people down the area. Have that famous episode in 1898 of uh, uh, what I've, I've heard described as the only coup d'etat that was success, successful that ever occurred on American soil or in the United right, States. Right, it is, and I, I think I was the one probably put that uh, out there at least yeah. recently. I, uh, the book is coming up on its 25th anniversary edition. Uh, it's called Case Fear Rising, and we're bringing it out back in May with an, with an afterward talking about some of the blowback of the book. But yeah, that was... In a sense, uh, the last battle of the Civil War in Wilmington occurred in 1898, if you want to think of it that way. It was really a continuation. The white supremacy coup was led by former Confederate officers, and of course they were using the sort of the same white supremacist rhetoric that had been used. Uh, so it was all very familiar. Uh, and interesting things happened in North Carolina here, too, because... Um once, uh, well, Sherman finally makes it to Goldsboro after the Battle of Bentonville, and um, he, I think, is summoned to, to a conference in Washington with General Grant and uh, Abraham Lincoln. And I remember reading he took a he took the cars, I think they called them, to New Bern, and then took a packet boat to get his directions. But by the time he got back and got you know back in the saddle, so to speak, Lincoln had been assassinated, and everything had changed. Yeah, he, he finds out that Lincoln, as Sherman finds out that Lincoln was assassinated just as he's ready to get on his train to go and meet General Johnston. Uh, he's, he's in uh, Raleigh, and Johnston is somewhere in the Durham area. They're going to try to meet each other and at least talk about a truce at this point. And by this point, Sherman has been reinforced by all the troops from New Bern, all the troops from Wilmington. So he's got about 90,000 or so, not just 60, he's got another 30,000. So he has got a juggernaut of an army. Like, they're really massive, and he can pretty much overpower anything. But on the other hand, Johnston has the remnants of the Army of Tennessee and coastal batteries and whatnot, and they're not surrounded as they were at Appomattox. They can easily fight if they choose to. They could easily run away and regroup somewhere else if they choose to. And, in fact, that's what Jefferson Davis orders him to do, to take the infantry to the mountains and to, to go on and carry on a guerrilla war there, which, had Johnston obeyed that kind of terrible order, that would have kept the war going for you know another generation. Uh, Sherman, for his part, is ordered basically to wipe Johnson out. He's not supposed to be treating with him. He disobeys. He creates. He meets with uh, Johnson, and the first thing he does is show him the telegram that he just received, saying like that he's assassinated. And by the way, everybody in Washington believes Jefferson Davis planned it, and the Confederate government was in on it. So if we're going to work anything out, it had better be soon, and it better be now. And they work out, it takes them a while, they work out a, a, a surrender document, go away thinking, well, okay, this is done. And then when they both send it to their governments, they're vetoed. So Davis's government doesn't accept it, and the War Department in Washington 
now under Andrew Johnson and, and with him sent, and they don't accept that they send Grant down basically to relieve Sherman of command. Grant disobeys, he comes down, but he doesn't do that. In fact, he helps Sherman to negotiate the new surrender based on the Appomattox model. And so the generals who are, you know, among the fiercest warriors of their age really are the ones who decide enough is enough, the killing has to stop. And Sherman and Joe Johnson, who've never met until they meet at Bennett Place to negotiate the surrender, they become friends for life. And so at least one good friendship comes out of all that fighting. And it's a good time of year for your book to come out. Uh, I'm, I don't know if it, well, I'm sure there must have been some calculation because this is the very time of year uh, when in 1865 all these things were taking place. We're talking with Philip Gerard. The last battleground, the Civil War, comes to North Carolina. We've got one more portion of our program, and we'll be back for it right after this. 951 News Radio 680 WPTF, Monday night, March 18th, the day after St. Patrick's Day. Philip Gerard, who is a professor at UNC Wilmington, has a new book, The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina, published by UNC Press, and he's going to be uh, kicking it off. It, Philip, is it the 31st of March that you're going to 31st be? 31st of March will be at uh, Quail Ridge Books from uh, 2 to 4, yeah. Okay. And I'll uh, also be appearing um, at uh, the Cumberland County Library in Fayetteville on Thursday the 28th at 6 p.m. in the state room. So okay. if you're traveling down to Fayetteville, uh, the site of the armory, by the way, that Sherman destroys. Right. There's a lot of, in this book about Fayetteville, so it's 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 a... It's a, and that's indeed one of the first places he encountered after he crossed the line into North Carolina and, and then headed uh, through Aversboro and uh, Bentonville and up to, up to Raleigh, as a matter of fact. Uh, right. We've got just a few minutes left, and my, my interviewer's book says, at this point I'm supposed to ask you, is there anything that you would like to speak about that we haven't asked you about? But is there, is there any significant thing that you learned that you didn't expect to learn or any the incident or whatever that you would like to draw attention to at this point? Well, I, I had never realized that there was a notorious prison camp right in Salisbury, North Carolina. And it was a site of, among, at first it was a very pleasant place. And, and uh, in fact, one of the pastimes was baseball. And there was, a, there was a famous painting of a baseball game that was played uh, on July 4th, early in the war, um, in which you can see, you know, Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers, and they're all having a great time playing. Later on, it became a hellhole because it was so overcrowded, and there was starvation, people living outside in burrows, basically. And then when the prisoners staged an uprising, they were met with volley fire and canister fire from some troops that had just gotten into town and, uh, and slaughtered. And many of them were buried in just an open pit grave. And there were reliable affidavits from citizens of Salisbury attesting to the fact that some were buried alive from the wounded. So it's a very haunting place if you go to the National Cemetery out there in Salisbury. Uh, I had never heard of the Shelton Laurel Massacre, which was 13 men and boys out in Shelton Laurel, where the war had turned into very much of a feuding kind of a war. And these were their neighbors who were part of a, of a Confederate soldier who caught them after a running battle through the, the hills out there, arrested you know these guys, and then marched them out into the woods and killed them in cold blood. And that was such a notorious atrocity that it actually wound up in congressional hearings after the war. Uh, so you know, the, the things you don't think too much about, I, I never knew there was a Cherokee Legion that the Cherokee, Eastern Band of the Cherokee had declared for the Confederacy and were led by the only white chief in their history. 
uh, little Will Thomas, William Holland Thomas, who is a character deserving of his own book altogether. All so um, there, there are so many different facets to this war in North Carolina that it becomes this kaleidoscope rather than just one you know, monochromatic thing. I remember seeing an article one time, uh, a reference to an article. I can't remember whether I read it or not, but it had to do with the cave soldiers of the Confederacy or something, and uh, they were basically uh, people who had uh, had run away from the war and were hiding out in caves in the mountains of North Carolina. Well, there were whole counties in western North Carolina where even the provo marshals and the home guard wouldn't go in because they were so full of deserters, not just North Carolinians, but other deserters who, who came south and decided that the war for them was over and they were going to just hang out until they could do something else. And they were often very organized and very deadly. They often preyed upon the local populations. And so, you know, there was this sort of civil war going on in the West that was a very different civil war from the clash between the Union and the Confederacy. Once again, the war ended. The, the surrender took place at uh, Bennett House, I believe. And I, you have a, yes. a, a, a near Durham. Huh? It was the home of, of John and Nancy Bennett in, uh, in Durham, North Carolina. And, uh, you know, they had lost everything in the war. And, uh, you know, the, their sons, their son-in-law, they had been uh, made destitute by the war. And then these generals show up and decide that they're going to use their parlor to negotiate a surrender. And they do. Um, and so in a very humble place, this great cataclysm comes to an end in the East. I think I remember you, you I, I believe her name was Nancy, is that correct, uh, yes, Mrs. Yes. Bennett? And you, she goes to the door and offers to make us some tea, and then she and her husband decamp to the cookhouse outside while... Yes, she actually apparently poured them cold pitcher of buttermilk. Buttermilk, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. And which I think is a wonderful, it's just the sort of thing that you can imagine the hospitality of a plain farm woman doing. Well, you sounded one other thing quickly because we've got less than a minute, but you sounded like you had a good time visiting the Tredeker Ironworks and Chimborazo and the places in Richmond. Uh, yeah, I, I, I actually had a kind of a grisly fascination with all the medical instruments, got to handle those on several occasions and, and see how the surgeons buy their trade. And um, uh, and it, it was a good excuse to go out and about and roam around and find the landscape of the war as these men understood it, as these women understood it back in the day. So. It really was kind of a gift to have this, um, a fairly exhausting one. Well, let me bid you, bid you adieu. I'm going to put you on hold at this point. We've been talking with Philip Gerard, uh, The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina, on The Tom Kearney Show tonight.